Clear the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the emotional, manual, financial, and domestic burden, how do our evolving views on sex, love, gender roles, and power dynamics determine how we share responsibility? I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today, I'm talking to Yehuda Duenas, a fellow intimacy coordinator, experiential director, and a good friend. Hi, Yehuda. Hi. Hi, Mia. How's, how's it going? It's awesome. We're doing this from home today for the first time. Yeah, we're in we're in Corona quarantine. Yeah, yeah. This is this is social distance podcasting, I guess. <laughs> Which I'm so happy to do. I feel like I'm sitting right in, the, in front of you, in front of. My I know. Screen. Oh, and also worth mentioning, Yehuda and I grew up less than probably half a mile away from each other, um, but only met this past year. So when you were growing up, how did you see the labor divided in your family and your household? It actually switched around a bunch. Um, My dad had a business and my mother also worked often, sometimes worked with my dad. She also had her own, uh, my mom also had her own uh, art consulting company for a little while. Um, And then... So they they both worked um, and they both and sometimes worked together. Uh, And so I feel like the and my father cooked and my mother cooked. So it felt like the division of labor was actually. From my I'm thinking back to like my childhood perspective, it seemed kind of equal almost. Hmm. Um, I think because my father's my father had the business um, and that was more of like a steady, he was a furniture designer. Uh, and so, uh, that was sort of the, the more kind of steady business, maybe like the sort of like breadwinning model kind of fell harder on my father. Um, and this is like the eighties and, and early nineties in Los Angeles. Uh, so but you know they both worked and they both worked together and they worked pretty hard to you know put dinner on the table for us and uh for me and my brother so it it i i think it was like almost equal but with like a little bit more of like kind of importance on my father's business because he had the sort of you know like the the business was like the 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 main income bringer for the family and as far as like do you have a picture in your mind um of like how emotional labor was divided in your family? That's kind of hard to like put a finger on. Yeah. Um, and something that I haven't actually ever considered. So I'm considering this on the fly, uh, with you. Long pause. Um, well, maybe let's start with like, um, like, you know, child rearing duties, for example, like, Totally. I think that would fall a little bit more towards my mother. Um, However, my parents did this strange thing when we were born where they sort of like I was my mom's kid and my brother was my dad's kid. It was very (laughs) kind of strange and bizarre. And so I spent a lot more time with my mom and my brother spent a lot more time with my dad. My brother's four years younger than me. Um, That was definitely weird. How Um, does that play out? 
Yeah, it was a little strange. And like, you know, we would have like days of the week where we would spend with our parent. Whoa. Um, yeah, like a Sunday, you know, and it, it wasn't like it, it wasn't so prescriptive, but it kind of turned out that way. Um, mm. And so, you know, I would have like Sunday coffee and, you know, my mom loved to. There was this place on Robertson called Michelle Richard. Um, it was like at the corner of Robertson and Beverly. Uh, I think it was Beverly or third or something. Uh, and it was just this great French patisserie, which had the most amazing eclairs to this day. I have not had a, a paralleled eclair. Wow. Um, Michelle Richard is an old, you know, an LA, LA throwback. Uh, so yeah, we would go for like coffee and eclairs on Sundays or, you know, something like that. We would do stuff together, go to the museum. Um, we definitely did a lot of things as a family. Um, was that but my dad my dad wore, it was kind of openly talked about that's so interesting um, so they like they wait, decided wait, wait. that the, very the, consciously the quote ownership wasn't really talked about but it was like you're gonna go spend time with your mom now and and oh. my brother's gonna go spend time with my dad which wasn't that easy actually like that i remember that being like well i kind of want some time with my dad too it, it wasn't that prescriptive it wasn't like we were you know kept apart from each other or anything like that um but it, it was a facet of my growing up. It was interesting. Hmm. Um, I do think that probably the, you know, like the child rearing stuff, you know, from my uh, perspective and my experience fell more towards my mom. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and my dad worked a lot. Like he was always at work. I remember him coming home really late, like covered in dust and paint. <laughs> and going on business trips and like, you know, my dad was definitely like running the business and my mom was around more. And so I feel like it was a much more sort of traditional, um, you know, household in that way, like gender, you know, like, you know, traditional, but like, you know, traditional gender role household in that way. Yeah. So how do you think, can, are there ways that you can like kind of look at how, the adult that you are now and the adult that your brother is now and kind of trace things back to this kind of division between your parents? It kind of like my dad was a designer. My mom, my mom was an archeologist by training Whoa. and my father was a designer. And so, but also my mom was like really into, you know, like I would roll my eyes as a kid and I'm so thankful now, but like, you know, always going to museums and there was like a lot of culture that came from my mom. My dad was into more experiential things like he loved to sail and, you know, sort of be out in the world doing stuff. And so I do kind of see that. I, I definitely see both facets in myself. I do see that division a little bit in myself and my brother. Um, you know, like he tends to lean a little bit more towards business and design. I'm a little bit more on the artistic, you know, like more of an artist on the art side. And conceptual. Uh, your work. And conceptual. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, that's, uh, that, that, that it, you know, this is actually the first time I'm thinking about this stuff. So I'm really kind of like on the fly, um, imagining this and 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 really kind of trying to trace an, an outcome and yeah that feels that feels pretty accurate yeah well um that's a great lead up to i wanted to ask you to describe um one of your uh 
how do you call, what do you call your like experiential uh, mm-hmm. works of art? Yeah, totally. Um, so I call myself an experiential artist, experiential designer, experiential director. My background is immersive theater in New York in the early 2000s. Um, And from there, I went to grad school at RPI and got a degree in electronic arts and interactive technology. Uh, I spent some time working at Walt Disney Imagineering, working on new form immersive experiences and ride design. Uh, One of the ride experiences I made on my own, my own personal artwork was, uh, it's called The Ascent, and it's a mind-controlled experience where you wear an EEG sensor that reads your meditative state, and you're in a harness, and your meditative state affects all of the sound and the light in the room, and also we connected the EEG sensor to a rigging system, so it actually like starts to, as you meditate, it starts to lift you up into the air and intensify the sound and light in the room. And so if you can meditate your way, like for literally like 40 feet up in the air, you'll become enlightened and win. And then the gates of Kiev by Mazorsky starts playing and confetti <laughs> cannons shoot off and this big sun lights up and starts spinning Whoa. around and everyone watching starts cheering for you. You did explain this to me, but this one didn't like this one must have just blown my mind completely off the grid. Like, I don't remember. I now remember you explaining this to me, but that is that's incredible because you've done a bunch of neuroscience stuff yeah yeah and there was um I actually had a friend in uh in Brooklyn who wanted to he I think he I think he said he bought an EKG and he like wanted to kind of play with it also an artist and a a theater person I bet you EEG oh yeah EEG yeah (laughs) wow it's been a while um, can you explain the kissing experience? I love the kissing yeah, experience. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, I'm an experiential director. And so that's one of the experiences I made. I also work in the, just to finish up that thought and then I'll jump, I'll, I'll, I'll lead into the kissing experience, the kissing experience. Uh, I also work commercially as a commercial director and do, uh, experiential, you know, brand experiential branded advertising, um, but also created a piece for the Ad Council, which was called Love Has No Labels, uh, where we, uh, we used a, a motion capture suit that you wear, just sensors that you wear on your body. Um, and this was the piece with the skeletons kissing on the screen. And so you see skeletons kissing and then they reveal themselves and you see that it's a lesbian couple and a mixed race couple. Um, and uh, challenges your your biases and assumptions you see two skeletons kissing and you have an idea in your mind of who those skeletons might be and then they reveal themselves and you're surprised and so it was called love has no labels um so that's another example experiential example that one people can see on youtube yes love has no labels on youtube and went viral in 2015 and we got a lot of lot of love for that and i believe you won an award i did we won an award but we won a bunch of bunches of awards for it (laughs) um it won a bunch of can lions and we won an emmy and some other other awards as well yeah just an emmy just yeah you know (laughs) um yeah it's really fun it was really great it was a beautiful piece and actually that same year is when the supreme court overturned the the gay marriage rules in Mm. in the country Mm -hmm. and so i was I, I felt like in that year, there was a lot of amazing movement in, you know, trending, good, good, good market movement in the right direction. 
Yeah. Uh, and felt like, you know, I, I was happy that to think that I could have contributed to that. And I felt that that was really, that was really sweet. Yeah. Um, so the kissing experience is, it's just that we create the perfect kiss for you and a partner or partners um, for you and your sweeties. And you come to our space uh, and we make you a magical drink and we give you this like exquisite chocolate. Like you've never tasted a chocolate like this before <laughs> just to like kind of get you in the sensual mood. Um, we have a list of potions and elixirs that you can order non-alcoholic too, of course. Uh, and then it created this card game, this kiss me card game where, uh, you ask each other questions, you and your partner, you sit for a while and you ask each other questions and they're, uh, intimacy building questions. Uh, an example is describe your very first kiss in as much detail as you possibly can. Mm. Um, one of my favorite questions is there will come a day when you will have kissed your last kiss for all of us, that day will come. What kind of kiss would be worthy of being your last kiss? Um, so just really fun kind of, you know, uh, fun questions that build intimacy. And my hope is that if you've been together for 20 years, or if this is your second or third date, that this is going to be a really memorable experience for the two of you. It's going to build intimacy and connection. Um, and if it, you know, you've been together 20 years, it's going to re-spark something in your relationship. And if it's your second or third date, it's going to be that moment that you can never forget, you know. You're making me think of like, um, what kind of experiential art could be made right now where we all have to be six feet apart, um, mm. and some kind of like VR touch sensation, um, kind of thing, <laughs> you know, like that's. I think what's happening right now that I'm thinking a lot about is like generally we have this kind of spectrum of like single people to coupled people, you know, like there's mm -hmm. single people who aren't dating anybody. There's coupled people who are like married and live together. And then there's um, everywhere in between. There's coupled people who don't live together. There's coupled people who live on the other side of the country. There's coupled people who see each other once a week. And then there's like single people who are who are dating a few people sort of casually. There's couple or single people who are like, you know, working their way up to a relationship. So there's generally like a spectrum of that. Mm -hmm. But right now what we're facing is actually this binary. There are single people and there are coupled people. And there is no range of how much touch people are having in their life. People are either having touch in their life or they're having no touch in their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the extremely single side of that. And I am not generally a very like touchy feely person with like friends and acquaintances, but I, you know, I, I take this like dance aerobics class at everybody gym called pony sweat and generally it's packed and I usually get a little bit claustrophobic in there and I'm afraid to kind of dance, you know, with abandon because I don't want to like whack anyone in the face. And I'm currently doing pony sweat from my bedroom, like on a TV screen where they have us count out loud and they have us, you know, clap and stuff. And like doing that by myself is it's very emotional. And like as as much as I get a little nerve wracked in class about how close everybody is to me, all I want right now is that like 
nervousness and fear that I'm going to whack someone in the face. Like mm-hmm. I would love for someone to kick me in the shin. You know what I mean? <laughs> like totally. That's that's what I'm like really craving right now. So anyway, I'm I mean, I'm it's, now it's no it's no secret that we need connection and we need intimacy right. and we need, you know, we're we're social creatures. Our 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 software, our mind software is, you know, built on that foundation. It's really important that we figure right. out other ways to maintain it. So yeah. to finish up, kiss me. So you play your you play your card game, and then your host comes up and asks you and your sweetie sweeties to choose a song that you're going to make out to. <laughs> uh, and it's really interesting because you can sort of see the dynamics of mm-hmm. you know different couples and how they interact with each other. And so uh, it, it's sort of my hope in this project to uh, you know to call attention to those for you and your honey um, and to sort of get to a new, new place of communication through this. Mm. And so you choose your song and then you're, that's the end of act one. And so act two, you're led into this room where you sit at these two beautiful desks that are, are back, you're back to back from each other. And there's this beautiful stationery on the desk and this like cauldron of bubbling wax uh, mm. and a stamp and this beautiful pen and nice stationery. And the prompt is to write a love note to each other. Whoa. And so something that we don't really do that much anymore, which is write. Um, and so you write, you pen a love note to each other and then you seal it in wax. Um, your host comes and picks you up and takes your love notes from each other and then leads you into the, this is, that's the end of act two. Um, leads you to sort of this antechamber before the kissing room, gives you a mint, gives you each a mint and a little zhuzh, maybe some like lip gloss if you need it. Um, <laughs> and then you're led into the beautifully designed kissing room with the subwoofer under the love seat and the beautiful sound system and the great lighting. And you sit down and the curtains close and your song comes up and it's like booming under the seat, and like with the bass rumbling the love seat. And you get to make out for the duration of your song. Wow. And then your host picks you up from a separate door and hands you back your love notes and asks you to exchange them with each other. And then you discuss when you're going to open them. And some couples are like, we're opening this in a year. And other couples are like, I'm ripping this open in the parking lot right now. Um, And so we've had kind of a range of when people want to open them, uh, open their love notes. And then we send you off into the night. The experience is like an hour. And so we're just crafting the perfect kiss for you and your honey. And that's that's called Kiss Me. And we'll see if it ever comes back. I feel like so much is different now um, after the coronavirus. I'm hoping that there will be such a desire to reconnect. That that's what I'm be, thinking, yeah. Yeah, that there will be such a, you know, not a backlash, but that, you know, such a, a a correction in terms of how, you know, uh, we were going to want to overcorrect because we felt so uh, distanced from each other. I also foresee some fear in that too, though. Like when you think about like, how do we go back? Um, I was wondering if people are, I was wondering if people are going to start being more sensitive after this to people who don't like hugs. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. who don't like hugs who walk through the world constantly afraid that they're going to see someone that they know who's going to just 
insist on a hug and I'm wondering if this will make people a little more sensitive or the opposite where people are going to be like, oh, my God. And, you know, mm-hmm. just grab totally. people. My colleague who, you know, I believe Jean Franzblau runs mm-hmm. the, um, Cuddle, the Cuddle Sanctuary, Sanctuary in Venice. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're shut down right now, but they do such an incredible, like provide such an incredible service to the community um, by uh, by teaching people consent and ethical touch in non-romantic and non-sexual contexts um, to combat touch starvation. And I think that right now we need that more than ever. And there's simply no no ethical way unless we all get like hazmat suits. And, you know, like that's just the only way that but you know we're also we're on week two of this and i'm wondering that's gonna if, be its own kink by the way totally I mean, it, probably is, yeah. <clears throat> it probably is um or yeah like fur you know furry uh out like costumes but um protective furry costumes uh but i think that you know we're gonna see how long we're in this situation the way that it is exactly at this moment. And I would imagine that, you know, if we're still here in two months, three months, people are going to figure out sanitary and safe ways to physically connect. Um, I've been getting, you know, on like online dating apps right now, like all of the app, the apps themselves are sending out messages saying, please do not meet your date, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. date on this app, do not meet in person. Um, Have you dated on an app? Have you connected with people and had conversations? Like since since this all started? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I have. Um, there's, you know, I haven't dated. Someone actually, someone that I had been kind of planning on going on a date with before this started actually sent me a really thoughtful and sweet voice memo yesterday. I hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks. And he was like, hey, I haven't forgotten about you. Uh, you know, obviously the world is crazy. Um, but like, I was wondering if you would want to have a phone call this week. Wow. I was like, wow, that's, that's like lovely. really yeah. sweet and and thoughtful and like, yeah, you know, I, under other circumstances, I'd be like, let's grab coffee and a phone call would feel kind of funny to me. But yeah, I would do that, <laughs> you know, totally. Yeah. Um, but also like I'm going on walks with friends and we're staying far apart and, you know, we can't hike or anything, but we're just like walking around neighborhoods and no one's driving so we can stay six feet apart in the street like. I'm trying to do that as much as possible. I was going to ask um, if you would feel comfortable doing that first question with me um, of what your first kiss was like. So my first like real kiss was on Catalina Island. I was in camp, YMCA camp on Catalina Island. And I think it was the summer between sixth and seventh grade. And uh, I, I think I was t- 11 or 12. And... Jamie, who was my first kiss, she was 14. Hmm. And so, and she had definitely kissed before. And she was, (laughs) I wrote a whole, I wrote like a really long thing about this actually. Um, And so we were on the beach and we just have free beach time. And then there was, it was probably like a quarter of a mile walk back to our camp. And so everyone had gone back for lunch and it was like us and like maybe one or two other friends um, still on the beach. And we were kind of like laying on the beach side by side. And she's like, have you ever kissed anyone? And I was, of course, like, yeah, like lying. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, You know, 12 year olds with this, you know, 
I thought she was beautiful. Um, it's beautiful 14 year olds. Um, and she older was, woman. Yeah. She was an older <laughs> woman. Uh, and she was like, well, do you want to kiss me? And I was like, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we were laying on our sides on the beach with like the sun on us and like we touched lips and like her tongue just like, you know, just kind of like entered my mouth, like just the tiniest bit. It was like really, you know, ex it was wonder, it was like a wonderful teacher and it was the strangest feeling. I'm like, oh my God, it's so slimy and weird. <laughs> but then like, I think we spent the rest of this two week camp thing, like just kissing the entire time. Like I just, it was like, wow. I never wanted to stop kissing. It was wow. the coolest, most beautiful feeling. And I just wanted to do it all the time. I never wanted to stop. And I think we made out the whole time. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. That's so sweet. What about yours? What's your first? Um, well, I was I was older. I was 16. Um, and I had kind of developed this crush and like romantic thing with this um, boy. Uh, his name was Tim. I know his last name, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, and he had been a senior at my high school when I was a freshman. Um, and then a year later, he was going to school at CalArts, and I was a sophomore. And we had we had built this, you know, this relationship. It wasn't like a relationship, but like, you know, this, this dynamic um, via AIM, <laughs> instant AOL Instant Messenger. And... Um, and we finally went on a date. It was my first date. Um, and we went to the Century City Mall, uh, which, you know, which is before by our it house. was, which is right by our, between our houses. Houses, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Century City Mall, you know, back when it was like a quaint outdoor mall <laughs> and not like the space station that it is now um, with a Tesla store. Uh, and we went to, so we went to see Wallace and Gromit. And two of my friends, I later found out, had gone to the same movie to, like, see if they could see us, my friends Megan and Alana. Um, so we went to Wallace and Gromit, and then we went to Johnny Rockets for dinner. Do you remember Johnny Rockets? <laughs> In that food court with the green chairs. I remember it so vividly. I even remember the shirt I was wearing. It was a Michael Starr's uh, orange tank top. And... So we went to Johnny Rockets and when I get nervous and I still, I have not grown out of this. When I go on a date, I get so nervous. I get sick to my stomach. I get nauseous. I have to like run to the bathroom and I completely lose my appetite. So, but I didn't know this yet because this was my first date. So I didn't know why I was nervous. I just thought I was sick. I just was like, I don't know. There's something wrong with me. I don't feel well. I'm nauseous. And so I was like sitting there, you know, slowly trying to eat these like French fries and, and burger. And I was like, I think I got to go home. Like, I don't, I don't feel so good. And he was like, okay. And thankfully my parents were pretty chill. And so we went into the, like the family room and we turned on, um, Saturday night live. And it was the episode where, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones was hosting and she did this Chicago parody. I remember this so vividly. Wow. Yeah. And we were, my parents had this green couch and we were on the couch and then I was still not really feeling well. And then, you know what? It's funny. My memory cuts out when 
the kiss was like initiated. Like I don't remember the kiss being initiated. And he was with you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we we were together. We were just on the couch, sitting next to each other, and I don't remember how it happened. I don't remember if he asked or what, but we started kissing, and I remember just being like, "Whoa!" Like that's a mouth and that's a tongue and like those are teeth, you know, just like kind of having this like really mechanical understanding of what was happening. And then we ended up like laying down and like making out a little bit and it was cute and sweet, but I remember just feeling like almost not in a traumatic way, but a little bit dissociated in the sense that I was like watching myself and I was like observing what was happening because I don't think that I was very present in my body. And obviously now like knowing about the way that my body like deals with nerves being just, it kind of like shuts off. Um, that's probably what was going on. I was just a little bit like panicked about it. Um, but he was super sweet and then nothing really came of it. Uh, I think we like burst the, the tension bubble, you know? Um, but there was a little bit of like a hubbub at school because he was older than me. And there were like people who were between us in age who were like coming up to me being like are you like is this okay and stuff like that and I remember just being like yeah like it's fine I like him and he's sweet and whatever anyway um yeah that was my that was my first kiss mm-hmm. beautiful I love it yeah um okay so I wanted to ask you about your so your like family unit so I have a uh, co-parent partner of 18 years now, almost 18 years. No, almost, almost 19 years. Um, and uh, we ended our romantic relationship two and a half years ago or two years ago um, and still are very close, very close friends and raise our daughter together, but in separate living places. We live separately. Um, and our daughter is 12, almost 13. She's awesome. Um, and, uh, and I am non-monogamous, uh, and have a partner, uh, who also has a younger daughter. Um, and so there's sort of this like slow kind of family combining with these extended, you know, uh, I wouldn't really call it a polycule, um, mm. just because there's not a lot of connection or communication. Like I'm my between the two of them, right? There is there right? They're metamors. They're metamors, but they're not. They don't really have a relationship. I also have met Emily's ex, also co-parent. Um, also, they have a really wonderful and great relationship. Um, it's been really important to everyone to maintain a strong sense of family um, and also understand that relationships morph and grow into different situations. Um, and, and your kids have a relationship, correct? Our kids do have a relationship, yeah. Um, and I think they met like four or five months ago, four months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been pretty recent. And so it's really developing. Um, and we've been taking everything really slowly 
um, and really putting our kids' experience with all of this at the forefront as much as we can mm. um, so that it just feels uh, conscious, which is kind of an overused word a little bit right now, um, like the conscious decoupling Right. You know, the conscious that, kid, the conscious parent. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a little bit overused, but it's the sentiment is true. Yeah. Um, and really wanting to sort of design the experience for our, our children in the proper way um, so that they feel a sense of, you know, connection between their real parents, you know, between their biological parents Um and still a sense of sort of unity and family mm. um, and uh, and at the same time allowing room for this new you know this the new relationship that enters in in terms of the other non monogamy stuff we don't really communicate about that too much with our kids and you know our mm. kids are six and thirteen, and so we keep everything as age appropriate as we can while being as transparent as we can, while also just keeping the boundary of like, we're the adults and the parents and the kids are the kids. And, you know, we are actually needing to set firm boundaries and structures in the parent-child relationship as well. Mm. Um, and so it's really been, uh, it's not always, it hasn't always been easy, um, but it's really been worth, the work has really been worth it. Um, it's been really worth it. Uh, and also this is, this type of situation is different for, for everyone. And so I think there is no real right or wrong way. I mean, there's certainly wrong ways to do things. Um, yeah. I don't think there's any one right way to do it. This is sort of the values that my co-parent and I have and the values that my partners, my partner and her co-parent has, um, you know, with her family, I feel like we're really trying to be guided by what our values are um, and also what we want to impart to our children about communication, openness, uh, love, and the different types of love that exist in the world. Um, and so without revealing too much about my other partners and, you know, what they just trying to keep it sort of my from my own experience, that's sort of that's kind of a, a general view of the landscape and definitely ask me any questions that you have more specifically about any of that. Well, I'd love to bring it back to the division of labor mm -hmm. because you have to, I think, I think when, when people decouple and there's a child, um, you actually have to become a lot more specific about the division of labor in your families. Um, than you do when like everyone's living under the same roof, right? Because there's times in your life where you are responsible for that child, like because they are in your physical presence. And then there's times when you are of course still like mentally and emotionally responsible for them, but they're not in your home and they're not, you know, face to face with you. So yeah, can you speak a little bit about like how that work Fit, like familial work um, changed for you and the process of like being very deliberate about it and, and the ways that you've kind of made that work for you? Yeah, totally. Well, the, I think part of the, it, my, the separation with my, with my 
co-parent from our romantic relationship, it, it was a long separation. It was like two years of us really, you know, it, with some therapy and like really trying to, and so fortunate that we were in the position that we could be in, that we were able to go to therapy. I, I feel like we're really in a, a privileged position in, in terms of like our, what we were able to do in order to help uh, help with the guidance that we had to help us mm. through the transition. So I think from my own personal perspective, there was a lot of realization about like what was really unequal in the relationship. Um, Mm. And a lot of that was on me actually. And so there was a lot of like, um, it was on both of us, you know, and there's different, different areas and different facets that we were each responsible for. But it was really, it was a, you know, a very kind of shocking look at my own uh, behavior and my own, not behavior, but sort of like just the way that, that our lives over 17, 16 years at the time just kind of, you know, fell into a particular type of pattern. Um, and I don't think that anyone was doing anything on purpose to, you know, nothing was malicious. Yeah, there was no, nothing was really malicious, but at the same time, emotional labor, physical labor in households, you know, all of that stuff, who was working more and who was not. Like, I was out in the world working more. Um, her uh, work was more, you know, she, she works in, in a position where people send her their work and she can work from home. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that kind of comes with its own set of, like, not being out in the world. And so there was a, a lot of, you know, emotional and actual physical, like just running a household, like requires a certain, you know, a, a big degree of physical labor. Um, and as, as Dan Savage says, it's the, you know, the relay race of parenting um, mm. and raising a child, you know, it's a, it's a, just a continual relay race. Um, and so there were some real wake up calls for me in terms of like my own responsibility um, and, uh, and, and I think that that was really amazing, really important. And so I feel like the labor is much more equal now. Um, and especially because we're not, you know, because we have separate households and we're not living together, actually things, you know, we, uh, part of our mission now is to make things every, is to make our, our division of time with our daughter and sort of what we do as equal as we can, as equal as like, you know, as physically possible. It Mm. won't always be, you know, exactly 50-50 down the middle, but we really try to work to do that. And so in terms of, you know, the time split with our daughter, what we're doing, what we're paying for, like we really try and have it be exactly even. And we, I feel very blessed and lucky to have a partner, a co-parent who is on, you know, we are, I would say, you know, for the most part on the same page about so many things. Um, No two people will ever be on the same page about everything, obviously, but I feel like for the real, like the, the value pieces, like the very important things, um, the, where our values align in terms of how we want to raise our daughter, what we want to impart to our daughter about our separation, how we live our lives now, how we want to, you know, we have dinner together once a week, we still go on vacations together, you know, we're, we're, we still are familial and a family, uh, even though we're not romantically entwined in each other's lives anymore. Um, and it's, I feel like it's, 
uh, enabled us to grow in a lot of ways that I didn't, I, d I don't know if it would have been possible otherwise. Um, and, uh, and become new, new people to really evolve and not sort of be, you know, I, I felt like we were both stuck and it was not easy becoming unstuck. It was painful, like a lot of pain, um, and a lot of work. There was a lot of work on both of our, uh, both of us, you know, in terms of like, it was a big labor of love in order to be able to separate in a kind way. Um, and that was also very important to us to do that. And so, yeah, it was kind of a long-winded, long-winded meandering response. Um, did I answer the question? I think yeah, I did. no, yeah. totally. Yeah. That was, um, that was very thorough. I think I'm, I'm wondering what kind of labor you find, um, like, comes most naturally to you and then where it is that you feel like maybe you find yourself a little more uncomfortable or where you find yourself like wanting to work to kind of improve in 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 what areas you find labor comes easily and in, and where it's more difficult um i'm really into like processing and so i feel like something that comes easy for me is like talking about shit for a long time, you know, and figuring it out and getting into it. I feel like what I learned through this process is how to look at myself in a, in, in a new, in a, in a different way and to allow someone's criticism of me or, you know, a problem that someone might have with the way I do something to actually hear it and to actually take that in and to process it and say, okay, you know, I, this is, an area where maybe I fell short for this particular person and I can do better, I can improve. And so I feel like in terms of processing, talking, I feel like I've become almost, almost fearless um, in, in that. Like I'm not afraid to really get into it. I'm not afraid to have something about myself pointed out and for me and to look at it and say like, I can, I can self-correct if I need to, uh, or I can adjust, uh, in order to yeah. ac accommodate what needs to happen. That doesn't mean that you need to change yourself at every moment to, ev to anyone's, you know, there's obviously like a keel and th that you need to have like, you know, kind of a, a gravitational center that you have into the earth, which is, you know, you and your space and your boundaries. Um, but at the same time in something that's a delicate negotiation, which is like parenting is a very delicate negotiation. There is a lot of give and take and opening, uh, yourself to different perspectives and it's not always easy. Um, and so remind me, <laughs> remind me your question. I feel like I was, I, I got uh, a little off track. Oh, like what, what kinds of work in relationships like comes most easily to you and where right, you right. think there's room for improvement. Yeah, but yeah. what you're talking about, I, I think is, um, you know, the, like we are fundamentally relational beings. Like we learn about ourselves in relation to other people. And that's why like as babies, we learn what is not my body by like putting my hand in my mouth and being like, I feel that. And then mm -hmm. like putting this cup in my mouth and being like, oh, that's not mm -hmm. me. Right. And then like, as we get older, it gets subtler and subtler. And it's like, we learn about ourselves by the, the people and the experiences that we have in like, that we're in close proximity to. And, um, 
so what you're talking about is this kind of like personal flexibility around, um, you know, finding that balance between accommodating other people, accommodating other people and their needs while maintaining your strong sense of self. And I think a lot of, and we've, I think we've talked about this, like a lot of the work that comes from training to be an intimacy coordinator has everything to do with getting in touch with your own boundaries and your own core. Um, and so that you can be present and available to other people and their needs, even when you can't necessarily, um, you can empathize even if you struggle to sympathize maybe like even if you've never had that experience that you can start to recognize like oh that's this person is having this experience I can see it on their face I can see it in their body I can see it in their eyes um I think that's exactly right and I think that being able to understand yourself and how you might respond in a particular situation allows you to get into that empathetic state that can even transition into compassion um, for so that you can extrapolate what another performer might be going through, particularly in a sensitive scene, like an intimate scene, you know, any sort of nudity, simulated sex, intimacy on screen or on stage, I feel like is a more vulnerable, more vulnerable position than any of us ever really give enough credit to. It's a very vulnerable state to be in on a set. Because you have to perform, you have to get it right, and you also have to, you know, be exposing yourself in a particular way. Right, and extremely present. I think something that's come up for me a lot throughout this work is that I think that, um, you know, when we're taught what what empathy is, it's like put yourself in the other person's shoes. But I actually think that, that true empathy is one step deeper than that, one step farther than that, which is that... Um, or further than that, which is that it's not how would I feel in the situation that Yehuda is in right now. It's knowing what I know of Yehuda, how is Yehuda feeling in this situation right now? Because we can also, um, you know, that comes up when we're like offering help, right? Or like advice to people where it's like, We don't necessarily want to help people the way that we want to be helped. We want to help people the way that they want to be helped. We don't want to give advice that we need to hear. We want to give advice that the other person needs to hear. But so often we are just thinking like, how would I feel if I were there? Um, And I think that comes up in in the Wheel of Consent, um, which I'll put a link in the show notes to that, um, which is that in the serving and accepting uh, dynamic, you can actually serve non-consensually by insisting that someone needs your help or insisting on helping in the way that you want help but not the way that they want help. Let's, uh, let's, and like, let's break down the, the Betty Martin wheel of consent for a second for the listeners sure. so that they don't have, sure. so that they can know what we're talking about because it's so great. It's such a game changer. I don't know how to, I've been working on trying to figure out how to explain it without visual aids. This is how I do uh, it. This is, can okay, I you do it? it? Yeah. You do it. So Please. You're, you're walking through the park and you see some, you see someone giving someone a massage and you feel yeah. like there's a giver and there's a receiver and that person is getting a massage and that person is giving a massage. And the assumption is that the person getting the massage is the person receiving and the person giving massage is giving. And of so, the gift, huh? Of as, the gift of, of the gift as well as the action. Right, exactly. The gift of the massage, and so what this 
you know, woman Betty Martin put together with the wheel of consent is that the person giving the massage might be deriving as much pleasure from the giving as the person receiving the massage. Or In fact, more pleasure, or more pleasure. In fact, the person giving the massage might be like giving a really hard massage because that's what feels good to them. And the receiver might be like, oh, that doesn't feel good. That's too hard or something like that. And so it's this idea that when you give and when you receive, that there are different quadrants of how you give and receive. You can give in order to be receiving yourself. And so uh, there's all of these really cool exercises that you can do inside of. There's a great to practice with your partner or partners. The three-minute um, game? The three-minute game is fantastic. Yeah. It's so wonderful. Um, might be, uh, how could we do a virtual three minute game actually? That's so I know. interesting. <laughs> that, yeah, <laughs> so cool. we should talk about that after yeah. this. Um, yeah. So I've been thinking accurate? a lot. I feel like I've missed yeah. something in there. No, that you're, I think what was, what was missing that to me was that it's about, you can, you can give and receive an action and you can give and receive a gift and sometimes, and the gift is like who, the, the question is, who is it for? So mm -hmm. the gift is about who it's for. So you can give an action and give the gift, but you can also give an action and receive the gift. So mm -hmm. it could be that you are, and you can also, you can give the gift, but receive the action and you can receive both the action and the gift. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I have a wide bandwidth for emotional labor, like for getting in there, for processing, for talking. And I actually feel unsettled. When things are unsettled, I feel unsettled. And so it maybe it's even slightly selfish to want to process something until it feels like, okay, like I cannot stand going to bed. I mean, obviously sometimes you have to put things down and bring, pick them up later. Um, uh, but I just can't stand, you know, going to sleep feeling unsettled with, you know, a partner or feeling like there's some, you know, there's hard feeling or static. And so, and that just happens. I, like that's life that happens sometimes. So I feel like that's the type of labor that I feel really down to do. Like I'm really down to, and I'm really down to like look at myself and course correct, you know, and to uh, understand how my actions might be affecting someone else. And sometimes you don't, you're not, I'm not aware of that. And a lot of people are. Um, yeah. And so, and then I'm trying to think of the, the, the laborious things that I don't like to do. I feel like now that I live alone, I'm continually cleaning. And I yeah. realize that that's something that I was not doing. I was not sharing the load in housework and cleaning when, when my co-parent and I were living together. And I didn't even realize it. And it's something that right. was like, it was like invisible to me. Um, and that's something that I'm now appreciative of. And I also kind of feel bad about. Um, and I also feel like that's like, I don't know. There's some like, you know, the, the, it's not even residue. It's like the, you know, the echoes of traditional gender roles that have just, you know, that totally have, you know, just reverberate in our society that are part of the fabric of our life that a lot of people can't really see through or, or look at because it's invisible. It's part of like the invisible. So many things that were now with the coronavirus, and for example, so many things that were invisible to us are now becoming visible. Like, 
Right. I'm an experiential designer for commercials. Right. Like people can't be together. Like now what? You know, I yeah. do a lot of digital stuff as well. So I feel like, you know, there, there's so many ways to experience covers so many different things. However, a lot, the point is, is that a lot of things that we, we take for granted and that we don't even see how they function, um, right. you know, suddenly are revealed. And so I feel like, you know, it, it, it's kind of mundane to say, but I feel like there was a lot of just like, you know, childcare stuff and like house stuff that just kind of happened anyway without my input and so became invisible and then I just relied on those things and I feel like being more self-sufficient and living alone and having you know long periods of time where I need to take care of my you know daughter on my own uh I never feel like I'm totally on my own but like you know as a single parent um become more clear to me uh have become more clear to me um but I'm still trying to think of the stuff that I don't like to do. It might take someone else having to point that out for me um, right. as opposed to me understanding what it is. I'm trying to think of like stuff that I'm, you know, emotional or any other type of labor that like I'm down for and that I'm not down for. I'm not down for it in general, like carrying the an emotional load for someone else who can't really look at themselves and can't also step, right. step up and you know, take responsibility for their part in the thing that doesn't, that happens to me more professionally than it does in my personal life. I feel like I surround myself with people who I can go deep with and sort of get, you know, like be on a, on a similar sort of value page with in my personal life. Professionally, it's unavoidable. You're going to encounter right. so many people who come from so many different backgrounds, who have so many different levels of awareness of their lives, of how they affect other people, that it's a real sort of, you know, I see it as, uh, I guess a martial arts metaphor would be Aikido where like, you know, like this energy is coming at you and you having to do a lot of sort of like redirecting in order to maintain a sense of sort of like balance and harmony. Um, right. and so it's hard to tolerate that, especially in my personal life, people who, you know, won't look at themselves and won't you know, agree to even look at themselves. Um, I feel like for me is sort of a non-starter. Um, right. In, in terms of personal relationships. Um, and so that's where I do draw a line in terms of like doing, having to do a lot of labor and work for other people. And I've certainly been in situations um, that way where I feel like I'm doing a, doing a lot of work for other people emotionally. Yeah, yeah. I hear you on that one. I can have so much compassion for someone who is very different from me and who's maybe struggling with certain things, but I lose patience when they're not willing to look at themselves and mm -hmm. not willing to like do, do the work to, you know, even, even look at the ways that they're unknowingly asking for help and service you know, I think back to the wheel, like that's the, the entitled shadow side of the accepting quadrant, right? Where it's like, if you aren't willing to look at the ways that you are asking people around you to do labor for you, to serve you, um, then they run out of that generosity component because all they're mm -hmm. doing, they start to feel like you expect, expect it. And there's this entitlement piece. 
Um, so in wrapping up, I just want to ask you for three uh, people or media, whether it's books or uh, movies or whatever it is that have been very formative for you and have that you can sort of tie to getting to this exact point in, in your life, whether that's your career or your personal life or your creative life? I feel like in my early theater making days, I was fortunate enough to see the work of uh, a theater director, a tour really named Reza Abdo um, in the early nineties in New York. Uh, and that absolutely changed my life when I saw those pieces. He was an Iranian-born director uh, who had AIDS, and it was like the height of the AIDS crisis, you know? I mean, it was like full-blown AIDS mode then. Um, this is like 90, 91, um, 92. Um, sorry, I have to switch my headphones. Um, and so in his, he was like the the Fellini of the theater world in a way. Mm. His work was so uh, dense and raw, uh, and he had this. Uh, I mean, it was everything. It was like I'm going to get all sort of stuttery and tongue tied about it because it was actually so meaningful to me, and it influenced me so intensely in my early in my early days. Um, his work is on YouTube now, actually. His name is Reza, R-E-Z-A, Abdo, A-B-D-O-H. Um, you know, it's like early 90s videos of like kind of, uh, his pieces were immersive in a way, um, but I, just because they took place in like various warehouses with different stages and you had to like, audience had to travel. They were really visceral, really intense. They were a lot about him uh, being gay and Iranian and dying of AIDS in a culture that accepted none of those things. Um, and it was, his work was beautiful and it really changed my life. It was a huge, huge, huge influence uh, on me and particularly my early theater work. And I, I think that what was the most moving to me is he had so much to actually say. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of art in the world and there's a lot of, you know, people with opinions and people making things that maybe they have something to say. Some people do, some people don't. He was, he had such a conviction in his voice, uh, in his theatrical voice. And he was so angry um, and that, and political too. And so, and that sort of political rage and anger that came out in his voice became such a beautiful mouthpiece for him. It was like this fuel that was like such a, uh, it, it led to these moments of like ecstasy and beauty in a theatrical setting where like your move and his performers were unbelievable. It was like the way that he was able to command this group of like, you know, completely, you know, gender bend. This is like early nineties, like gender bendy, like, non-binary like the whole it was like it was like a punk rock trans aesthetic in mm. a way and it was really formative for me it was um it was it was honest and raw and beautiful and it was uh and there was a lot of anguish in it and just this like the unfairness of like of dying and dying you know uh 
I don't know. There's so there's so I can I can go on and on about Reza. There's so much to say about it, and it was really uh, that was very formative, and that was in the early '90s for me. Um, and then that's that's a really tough question that you ask there. Like who are who are like the three like formative uh, formative people in my life? I was friends with a sculptor named George Noble who died a few years ago. And I met him when he was 65, I think. Um, and he kind of became this like father figure, mentor, grandfather figure to me in New York. And I cast him in some of my shows of my theater company. Uh, and he really took care of me. He made me dinner. He, we would smoke hash together. He was a sculptor and a performer a little bit, not really a performer, but that's why it was really fun to cast him in things. Um, and he was really support, like he was like a, a, a like kind of a benefactor to my work. Not a benefit, I mean, that's like the lamest way to put it. He was a really close friend um, and also just so supportive of me and my work that I was making at the time in New York City. Um, I think there was a year where I was just working on one show and didn't really have any other jobs and he helped support me. He would help build sets. He was an amazing carpenter too. And we would hang out a lot. And I think there was a lot of symbiosis in the relationship. I think he got a lot out of, you know, he, he got a lot of sort of energy and vitality, I hope from hanging out with me, but you know, we, we hung out a lot. Um, and he was really a, 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 a benevolent force in my life, uh, who was just supportive, like unquestioningly supportive of the work that I wanted to do. Um, and believed in me, like he really believed in me in this way that was really beautiful and irreplaceable. And I miss him. His name was George Noble. I'll look him um, up. Fantastic guy. Um, there's not much on him online, a little bit. I think some of his work is somewhere. I have a few of his pieces around here, actually. Oh. Um, and uh, so George, and that's a real personal one, you yeah. know, like, uh, and he was so funny in our shows, too. We would always dress him up in, like, these – it was really funny. And he had an accent. He's also, he was a Holocaust survivor. Mm. He was a child Holocaust survivor. He escaped Hungary in his father's backpack as like a four-year-old oh and, and, and moved to Chile um, and like had to get through Europe to a boat, to take a boat to Chile. It was like a really incredible story. Um, and yeah. Um, so I think George. And then... One, one more. Person or media. I kind of want to say the obvious thing, which is like my mom was like super like my I sure, why know, not? really sort of wonderful mom. My parents are from Israel and uh, we would go to Israel every summer to visit my family. And so my mom would, you know, take me on archaeological digs and she would give me tours of Jerusalem. Uh, and take me to sort of all of the quarters. We went into the Dome of the Rock together, which is the, you know, Muslim holy site in, in, in Jerusalem. Um, so I feel really, 
and also just she's such a curious person, my mom. Um, and has so this is so you know I feel like everyone would say their mom maybe not no. maybe not everyone no not everyone would say it. I think there's also a lot of people who like love their mom but don't find that she was necessarily formative for their like creative or professional life. You know. Yeah, I think she's my mom has been really influential, inspirational. I think that she has like a continual thirst for inhaling culture like Mm. to a point where I'm like I don't want to go to another museum but like you know we were fortunate enough to be able to travel a lot when I was young because my parents family lived my parents moved to uh LA after the you know two wars in Israel they didn't want to you know I think that part of it was they didn't they didn't want to live in that kind of continual war state anymore um, and so moved to Los Angeles, but their whole family was in Israel. And so we traveled to Israel a lot. Um, and so from there, I was able to go to Egypt and Jordan, um, and, you know, just to really kind of understand some, you know, obviously I have a certain perspective, um, to see the culture of the Middle East in a particular way. Um, and, uh, and also, she just really has a, a thirst for the world and for travel, and so is able to really uh, travel a lot and extensively around the world as a as a kid, and to really see a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different ways that people lived. And there was something really fearless. Is I mean, still, um, but there's something very sort of fearless about her in a way. Um, she was also an officer in the army, which I think is kind of badass. Wow. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think my mom is a huge, uh, a, a really huge positive uh, maternal force in my life, artistically, culturally, and also just in from like a maternal caring perspective. And I feel like I, I have an intense maternal side to me actually yeah um and that I think is comes from my mom and so I'm really thankful for her I can confirm that yeah <laughs> yeah I wanted you to talk a little bit about the way that you see intimacy coordination as as an art form because for me um you know we can just talk about how we feel a little bit how it's like a different medium for both of us for me it's really about boundaries and like that's what was so impactful for me about this training and what has been what continues to move me and and gratify me in this work is like helping people find their boundaries learning about my own boundaries and then sharing with them uh ways to communicate them and express them um and navigate them in the world um I've found that with a lot of people that I work with uh the feedback that I get after the fact when I'm still in touch with them is that they it actually helped them like in their in their lives, you know, it, it really like rippled outward. Um, so that's, that's where that work is like so significant and meaningful to me, but I'm super interested in your, um, experience with it as, as an art form in and of itself. So I fell into intimacy coordination kind of by accident in 2007. Uh, and I was directing a play by a playwright named Thomas Bradshaw uh, that had really the most insanely graphic sex scenes written into the stage directions that everyone was like, how can we possibly do this? 
really respected playwright. All of the performers were really excited about being in the show, but everyone was like wide-eyed and freaked out about how are we ever going to stage this stuff. And so the first thing that I came up with with this cast was to say, you know what? We're going to talk about it a lot, but we're not going to touch it for at least two weeks. Like we're not going to be staging it. We're going to do a lot of table work around it. We're going to get to know each other. We're going to stage other parts of the play. We're going to get on our feet. We're going to get to know each other. But I don't want you to feel like, number one, surprise, we're doing a sex scene today. Like, I want, number one, I felt like everything, you know, I really wanted them to feel comfortable. And so I love your perspective of boundaries coming into it. I feel like it's the foundation of the work in a way. And I feel like when everyone understands what the boundaries of the art that you're trying to make is, the boundaries of what what the personal boundaries are, the interrelational personal boundaries are, uh, and then the boundaries of the production as a whole are, everyone can like, uh, like kind of like relax and like get into doing the work. And so I think that that's really foundational. Then there's like, for me, the really fun stuff, which is the storytelling. And like, how are we going to do this? Like, we all understand you know, the script and like what is called for and what is necessary. We understand what the playwright wants. Uh, we understand what the script calls for. If we're on a movie set, we understand what the director wants. Um, sometimes you're on a set where a director is like, I feel really uncomfortable with these sex scenes. You do it. Right. And other times a director is like, I know exactly what I want. Um, and so, you know, that's the, the idea of like, you know, the, the overarching idea of like what it is that we're making, like what is this work of art? I see all these pieces as like work, you know, an artwork or an art piece. And so I feel like, and there's also a hundred million ways to tell a story. And I feel like as a storyteller and as a director, I'm really into, I'm into intimacy in general. Like that's like a thing. It's like a, a kind of a hallmark of all of the different work and, and work that I've done has to do with intimacy. Um, and so bringing the idea of intimacy to performers, to the stage or to the screen, uh, I feel like it's this really kind of like wonderful, holy expression of self. I don't know. I really love it. Uh, and so, and, you know, once everyone's comfortable, once everyone knows what we want to do, we know like what we're trying to do artistically we've set our, what our personal boundaries are. I don't want to be touched here. I'm fine being touched here. You understand me. I understand you. There's really good communication around how we're, how we're making stuff. Then it becomes this like really wonderful, playful experience of would it be hot if I did this? Would this look cool? Would that look cool? Um, and it's a performance in a way. It's a performance of either intimacy or nudity or sexuality. And for the, things are changing now, but for the most part, I, uh, most of the sex that we see in media, I feel like is almost the same. Like there's a lot of sameness about yeah. it. Um, and so that's not my experience in the world of sexuality. I feel like everyone is so different. Everyone is so unique. Everyone uh, is so particular um, about their own sexuality, how they relate to people, what it's like before, during, and after. Like everyone is completely different. And so I feel like this idea of representation is really 
uh, wonderful and important. And with this new, there is so much sex on television and film. It's, uh, you know, it's something that sells lots of things. It's like a selling point. It's something as a culture and society, particularly in America, that we are really interested in. Um, maybe because we've been so repressed about it for so long and we've become mm -hmm. from, you know, this like, you know, the reverberations of the Puritans somehow are still with us. And so we have to, you know, find all of uh, whatever. There's a lot, a lot of different things that we can talk about in there. Um, and so I feel like finding the, uh, the ways to storytell around what people's sexuality is and maybe a little bit more close to what it actually is, I feel like is really interesting. And so in most of the things that I do, I like to throw in a little moment of awkwardness. Like it's mm -hmm. always awkward when you're taking your pants off because your cuffs get stuck on your socks, you know, like right. it just happens. And it's not something that we see in media, but I love those moments. I think they're so human. And so I feel like, and there's just something so fundamentally human about intimacy. It's something that we need. We're feeling it now in this, you know, pandemic where we're so isolated from each other. And so, you know, everything is storytelling and everything is fiction in a way in these situations. And so when I say a, a realistic representation, like not everything is real, but what we are getting to are real emotions and things that we actually feel. Another thing that I've always said is that, you know, this playwright stage directions, Thomas Bradshaw, one of the stage directions where he glides his penis gently in and out of her. Whoa. You know, and so obviously you're not going to show that on stage, you know, right. like there's no situation but on a stage in a, in a professional theater where you're going to show exactly that. And so my line always has been since I started this work in 2007 was that you don't have to see it, but you have to feel it. Right. You know, the audience has to feel these things. And yeah, so it's, it's a really, it's a really wonderful way of storytelling. It's real. It's fake. Uh, it's intimate, it's personal, it's performative, mm -hmm. um, it's vulnerable, it's fun. There's so many, there's so many, and it's a challenge too. And I feel yeah. like the, the, you know, the being sort of the facilitator of this, like getting people on the same page, getting people feeling comfortable with each other. I've all, like every set that I've been on, people have told me that, I don't know, they've learned something new about personal communication. They've learned something new about, you know, relational things about consent, about boundaries. Um, and there's so many ways to make something like hot and fun. I'll give an, another example. I just worked on a film where the nudity riders were that no one really wanted to show much flesh. Mm -hmm. um, and so great. No one wanted to show there was going to be no, you know, back nudity was fine you know, cleft of the buttocks was fine. Side boob was okay as long as there was no nipple. Like there was just a lot of, you know, a lot, no frontal nudity, no nipple, no pubic region. And so, okay, great. Like, what are we going to do then to make this scene really hot and wonderful, but without showing anything? And so we were able to really find a lot of, like what I did for that particular, uh, for that per this one particular scene was I really amplified the kissing. So I made the kissing more. They were they were totally fine. These two women were totally fine kissing each other. And so and we worked a little bit on it too because it was one person's first time kissing another person of the same sex. Mm -hmm. um, 
what we did was we really amplified the kissing and made the kissing really graphic and hot. Like they were sucking on each other's tongues and like laying in bed and like kind of laughing and like doing all this kind of like stuff that was really graphic with their mouths. And I feel like that then translated into what we weren't showing is I feel like is as powerful as what you are showing in a way. Totally. Can be more powerful because I feel like the most powerful tool that we have as, as artists and makers is the imagination of our viewers. And so if you can really spark the imagination of your viewer, it almost becomes more powerful than anything you can just graphically show in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I feel the same way about like silence in dialogue, you know, it's like what, if you can make what you don't see, uh, like richer, it, it can often be a lot more interesting than what you can see. That's something that I'm, you know, I do think about in, in my personal life about sex and intimacy as a creative form of self-expression for me. And that's something that I am, you know, grappling with currently. Like I don't, I don't have that creative outlet right now. And that's something that I, I miss. And I'm sort of looking for where that, like where I can find that flow um you know now that i'm a shut-in basically yeah i totally agree with that i think for my you know to you know move this from the professional realm the intimacy coordination as a professional realm does right. not like that's its own encapsulated bubble and like personal sexuality does not really i mean aside from perspective and aesthetic does not enter into that world like right. they're separated flipping into my own personal life and like putting intimacy coordination aside and flipping into my own personal life. I totally agree with that. I feel like for me, sexuality is a really fundamental creative expression. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I feel like it, it's not some, a lot of people say, Oh, sexuality fuels your artwork. Like in a way yeah. I don't, it's it for me like it kind of is the artwork <laughs> yeah. in a way. I feel that way as well it then also does fuel the rest of life in a way. And it certainly totally. does fuel creativity. Um, but yeah, I really do feel that like sexuality and sexual expression is, yeah, it's definitely like an art form and one right. that I enjoy from practicing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but even yeah. like the language that we use around it, like being turned on, like you can think about that rippling outward from simply like physically turned on into like mentally turned on, like stimulated in all of your senses and having that reverberate throughout your life that, you know, when, when you have, when you experience the feeling of being turned on more, it, it does impact more than just, you know, your physical experience. Totally. Well, thanks, Yehuda. Thank I you think, so much. I think that's it. Um, okay, good. Thanks, Mia. Yeah, thank you. You can find Yehuda on Instagram or on his website at xxxyehuda.com. I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. You can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ciarto, at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, and producing help. And thanks to Tyler Fjeld for the music. You can reach me at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com. See you next time. Thanks, Mia. Thanks, Yehuda.